Good morning. Y'all doing well this morning? I saw someone walking in with a pillow this morning. I was giving Kendra grief for bringing in a pillow. She said, well, I heard the pastor's sermons get a little boring sometimes. So she came prepared. Uh, hopefully we'll wake you up this morning. And uh... Thanks, Kendra. We've been moving through this letter uh, to the Ephesians, and Paul has given us a summary of the mission of God. And the mission of God, as Paul understands it, as Paul writes, is bringing all things under the reign of Christ. And he talks about the, the redemptive benefits. He talks about salvation and reconciliation between us and God, but also between us and others. And now we're moving towards the practical implications of this story for our everyday life. Paul fleshes out what it means to be a part of God's story in the way we live, in the way we exist as a church, as a, as a family of believers, and in the way that uh, families themselves, actual blood families, interact with one another, how we treat others around us. Paul's going to be taking a look at that over the next several chapters. Think of a, a car that's shifting through gears. That first gear is to get things moving in the right direction. It takes a, a lot of work to get from stop to start. And so Paul does that by grounding us in God's gospel story, by summarizing what God's plan is all about. Then he moves into second gear and still getting up to speed, he talks about living a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Eventually, we'll move into third gear, building uh, that momentum, talking about unity and maturity in the church. And by the fourth gear, we're kind of off and moving, off and running. Paul is talking about how we live out our calling in everyday life. So we get into that third gear. We start to move forward with some practical uh, implications for our life in, from the Scripture this morning out of Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, turn there to Ephesians chapter 4, taking a look at the first 16 verses this morning. As you're turning there, uh, pray with me. Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Speak to us this morning, through me or despite me, always through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins chapter 4 by talking about the state that he is writing from. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It's interesting to me that Paul doesn't identify primarily as a prisoner of Rome. This is who is physically um, imprisoning Paul. It's the empire of Rome. But Paul is turning this prisoner imagery on its head, and he sees himself as a prisoner for the Lord, a captive to God's calling on his life. Last week, we talked about Paul's trust in big prayers and being willing to live in complete trust that God can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And Paul is 
living a life worthy of His calling. And we know that because He appeals to the fact that He is now a prisoner because of that calling. He doesn't find shame in being a prisoner. He's actually appealing to it as a kind of authority, as a prisoner of the Lord, as one who is a captive because of following this calling on my life. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This phrase, live a life worthy of the calling you have received, there's a Greek expression here that's something like our now walk the walk. You believe this stuff, you've heard the good news of Jesus, and now you need to walk the walk. Walk worthily of the calling you have received. And what is this calling that we have received? It's to get on board with God's plan for the universe. That is, receive God's gift of salvation by grace, be reconciled to one another, and now partner with God's mission to bring all things under the reign of Christ. This is the calling that we all receive as followers of Jesus, as those that have been baptized, who have been born anew. This is our calling, this is our ministry. In verse 2, Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You know, humility was not a a virtue in ancient Rome, in ancient Greece. You, You didn't voluntarily humble yourself. You built yourself up. You showed everyone how authoritative you could be. You didn't voluntarily look at yourself and say, I'm not that special. I'm not that great. And yet the biblical writers seem to be valuing this humility, this this humbleness of seeing themselves as they truly are. Humility is about being honest about ourselves. It's the old phrase, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's a definition of humility. When I was reading through this passage this week, there was a a song that's sometimes on on the radio that came to mind. It's written by Sidewalk Prophets. It's a song called Save My Life. And in the first verse of this song, it's about a waiter or a waitress who's serving, and they feel forgotten. They feel like they're a, a means to an end of, I bring you your food, and you don't really care what's going on in my life. You're just happy that you have your meal, and it's what you ordered. They're just handing out food, but they long for someone to look them in the eyes and see who they really are and the pain and the brokenness that they are experiencing inside. And then the second verse comes, and this verse kind of slaps me in the face every time I hear it. The second verse says this, I'm the pastor at your church. For all these years, you've listened to my words. You think I know all the answers, but I've got doubts and questions too. Behind this smile, I'm really just like you, afraid and tired and insecure. If you look me right in the eye, would you see the real me inside? Would you take the time to tell me what I need to hear? Tell me that I'm not forgotten. Show me there's a God who can be more than all I've ever wanted. Because right now I need a little hope, 
I need to know that I'm not alone. Maybe God is calling you tonight to tell me something that may save my life. Humility is about being honest about who we are. And so let me be honest with you. I don't have all the answers. And I don't have it all together. And my kids show up and cause as much problems as anybody else's kids. Even though they were adorably twinned out today. I have struggles, I fight temptations, I have good weeks, I have bad weeks. You know, sometimes we come into church with our, our Sunday best, and I'm not talking about clothing. I'm talking about the smile on our face. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I smile and I nod. We shake hands. And we act like we have it all together. Maybe inside we feel like we're the only one this week that's here this morning that experienced some kind of brokenness this week, who had a, a rough week on the job, who had some kind of argument with our spouse, whose kids drove them a little nuts this week and secretly, but not so secretly, you're counting down the days until school starts. Or maybe you ended up with more bills than paycheck this week. I was watching a series on the History Channel that was about food innovators over the last hundred years this week. And one of those folks was Milton Hershey. And uh, they were talking about how Milton started planning out the, the town of Hershey before he even had his chocolate recipe figured out. He didn't want a typical early factory town that was dingy and dirty he wanted his factory workers to enjoy a high standard of living. And so Hershey was built as this pristine town. And sometimes I think that we've kind of taken that to heart to mean that we're supposed to cover up the rough spots and the hurt that we feel, that we experience, that we run into ourselves or we bump into other folks who are having a rough week, who are dealing with brokenness in their lives. Look, save the sugar coatings for the candy factory. Paul is working towards the unity of the church, and that starts with being real about who we are, about having humility and gentleness. Paul says we are supposed to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with means enduring and sometimes putting up with someone. Commentator Mark Roberts says the combination of be patient and bearing with one another in love implies that real life in Christian community is no picnic. Of course, God does not want us to put up with sin. Sin needs forgiveness, not endurance. But embodying this unity requires hard work, even endurance, as we put up with the things that bother us in others and when they return the favor. In Paul's day, this was Jews and Gentiles 
bearing with one another, trying to figure out what it meant to be faithful and to live out parts of the Torah together. They needed to, to follow and they, they had some very serious differences. They had to figure out how to be united despite those real and serious differences. In verse 3, Paul writes, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I kept reading this verse over and over this week. And honestly, this verse raises so many questions for me as a, as a part of being the big church right now, talking about the church beyond Spring Creek. Maybe that's the Church of the Brethren. Maybe that's the American church. It raises questions like, are there limits to the unity? What happens if there are irreconcilable differences between Christians or between churches? What does unity of the Spirit mean in a post-Reformation world when Protestant churches have been taught how to divide and separate? We all know the reasons why we can't be with them down the street. What does that mean in American culture to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? What does that mean in the American culture where we think the church is supposed to meet my every need or I'll go somewhere that can? I ask the questions. I'm not sure that I have all the answers. Paul says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In our tradition, in the Church of the Brethren, we have this phrase that we use sometimes when we disagree with one another. The phrase is, we are not all of one mind. It sounds a lot better than just admitting that we're arguing with one another. It sounds more biblical. We're not all of one mind. What's interesting to me is that there's a lot of ones in these verses. Paul here doesn't mention anything about being of one mind. Maybe there really is much more that unites us as the church than divides us. Not suggesting that we don't have real differences. I'm not suggesting that we just sweep those under the carpet and pretend they don't exist because we're called to this humility, this gentleness, this being honest about who we are. Maybe it would be more honest, maybe more unifying to lean into those differences that we have. But Paul is saying, if you're following Jesus, if He is your Lord and Savior, if you have faith in His good gift, if you've been baptized into this new way of living, this is the core of what matters most. So how do we work towards unity in the church? Paul points towards a growing maturity. 
We often think that unity is just about getting along with one another. And sometimes we substitute not talking about our problems for unity. And yet real unity comes as followers of Jesus mature in their walk with Christ. I think humility takes maturity. Being patient and bearing in love takes maturity. Staying in communion with one another even when we have real differences takes maturity. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, Jesus has given gifts to the church to help in this maturing process. And this list here, these, these five gifts, are not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Paul lists other lists of gifts in 1 Corinthians and Romans. But these are gifts given to the church to help the church mature. Different interpreters or theological perspectives debate how these gifts are to be applied today. We ask a question, is an apostle someone that only existed as the original 12 plus Peter, or is there a continuing role of apostles? The same question might be asked especially for prophets. Are these just the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist, or is there a prophetic role that continues? First, there's nothing in the text to suggest that this is something that comes to an end. But let me give you some, some definitions, and maybe we can see how these gifts may continue to bless and unify and help the church mature. So let's start at the end of the list, since that's what we're most familiar with. Some are blessed, gifted as teachers. Teachers are folks who help instruct and develop the church's understanding of Scripture and the mission of God. These are teachers and preachers, and generally we're well familiar with this role in our churches today. We generally value those that come and teach and preach. The second one from the end of the list is pastor, literally shepherd caring for the flock. Pastors have the, the gift of caring for others, of meeting with and comforting broken people. Sometimes we get a little confused in the church because we generally give the term pastor for whoever the paid person in the church office who gives the sermon on Sunday is, which is this preaching role is typically a teaching role. These folks have continue to have a, a prominent role in the church because there's always folks who are hurting, who need a physical manifestation of the, the love of God. And so we have pastors that, that meet with folks. And that's not just the paid person in the office. There's others who have a real gift for sitting in someone's home and hearing what's going on in their life, for sitting in a hospital room and hearing how they're struggling through this, this problem. The next on Paul's list is evangelist. These are folks who have a gift for proclaiming or pointing out the good news of the gospel. 
Now, as followers of Jesus, we're all called to different aspects of these gifts. We're, we're all called to be involved in some way in teaching and learning um, from, from our teachers. Uh, we're all called to show empathy towards one another, uh, of being willing to sit and listen to those that are, that are hurting. We're all called to, in some way, proclaim the good news when we're given an opportunity. But it also seems as though God sometimes gifts persons who are especially capable of different aspects of these ministries. Then we come to prophet. We often think of prophets or prophecy as primarily about telling what happens in the future. But prophecy is primarily about being a spokesperson for God. The prophets proclaimed God's truth. There's a difference between speaking truth and being a jerk. There's some folks who spout their opinions, especially on social media. And they say, I'm just telling you like it is. That's not a prophet. Prophets don't weaponize truth. Verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love, this is how prophets speak truth. This is the role, uh, this role has largely been silenced in our church. We often have condemned them as judgmental or else we've heard from people who might tend towards being a prophet but haven't figured out the maturity thing. And we often miss hearing the truth in love in churches today. Love comes from being in a relationship with someone. Truth in love is not hitting someone over the head with a Bible, but sitting down next to them and opening Scripture with them. A few prophets go a long way, but they help direct the church in God's truth. The last one of these is the apostle. These were leaders in the early church. They were those that were sent out and stretched the church. They were pioneers and entrepreneurs taking the good news beyond the confines of the, the Jewish religion. They innovated as they went to Mars Hill in Athens and proclaimed the good news, as they went to churches in Asia Minor, as they took the good news to Rome. These were visionary men and women who were filled with the Spirit, who had a vision of how the church could grow. And these folks are often ones now who are taking the good news beyond the walls of the church, who have a, a vision for saying, this is church, but there's good news that needs to be proclaimed out there. There's work that God is doing out there too. And how can we grow how can we move? The institutional church hasn't always valued these types or allowed them a place in the leadership or maturing process of the rest of the body. These folks need to have a place in the church today because our culture now often looks far more first century pluralistic than 19th century Christendom. And we need folks who can innovate and expand how the church engages folks outside the walls 
of the church. These are gifts to equip the church for works of service or ministry. See, we're all called to ministry. That's a part of the calling we've all received that was in verse 1. And these gifts are to help prepare the church for ministry. These aren't the only folks called to do the ministry while everyone else shows up and is a spectator to see what the rest came up with. Some, sometimes gifts and talking about spiritual gifts becomes an excuse for us because we don't have that gift. Mike Glenn uh, writes a, a blog post here recently on volunteers in the church and about calling out gifts in the church. And he ends it with saying this, let me stop right here and address the downside of gifts. When our church, he's talking about his own church, when our church first started taking seriously the idea that every member is called and gifted for kingdom impact, I noticed a comical trend. Whatever our church needed to have done, no one had the spiritual gift for that particular ministry. He says, well, maybe not. But if you're a member of a family, you're going to have to have chores. Every person in the family has to do something for the good of the family. Grocery shopping, cooking, lawn care, taking out the garbage. Without someone taking care of these basic tasks, the family dissolves into chaos. Let's face it. No one has the spiritual gift for taking out the trash. It just has to get done. Likewise, if you're in the family of God, you're going to have to have chores. Rocking a baby in preschool, helping a child color their picture, chaperoning a student trip, you don't need to be spiritually gifted for any of these. You only have to be faithful. Faithfulness is more important than talent. Obedience is more important than ability. Using the word volunteer bothers me, Glenn writes. I've almost stopped using it in conversation. Volunteer means I can show up when I want to, if I want to. There are no constraints on time or allegiance. We didn't volunteer. We were called. We were called to join Christ in this redemptive adventure called the church. Christ calls us to growing maturity, growing towards unity. A maturity that is honest about who we are as individuals, honest about where we're at as a congregation. And God has gifted the church with folks with a vision of growing towards that maturity so that we're not tossed about and running in all kinds of different directions that aren't following Christ. I wonder this morning, where is our brokenness and our division? We're human. We're in community with one another, so there will be conflict. The maturity part comes in when we try to work through our conflict to reach unity. I wonder, too, how do we call forward these gifts in our body? How do we allow these voices to be heard? Or do we sometimes silence or ignore them? 
It requires the community coming together, discerning God's spirit. We need to be in a process of growing in unity, growing in maturity as a family of faith. Following one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in 